Earth 2, a world much like our own, yet slightly different. There, young and old have joined forces to battle evil, the newest heroes joining the champions of the Golden Age, presenting Tales of the Justice Society of America. Hey everybody, and welcome back to Tales of the Justice Society of America. This is episode 23 of the show. My name is Michael Bailey. And I'm Scott Gardner. And we come to another milestone episode, folks. These are the last two stories that we will be covering today. The last two stories from this era of the JSA as a run proper. Sad. It is sad. Very sad. I've been crying all morning. Don't make me start again. It's okay. We're going to get through this. I promise. Actually, that's not true at all. I mean, we're upset, but we got so much shit coming up that it's <laughs> that it's not necessarily a bad thing. There's so much to look forward to. So anyways, we're not going to kind of dick around this time either like we did last time. We're going to get right to the emails. First thing we want to say is that on the last episode, we read an email from Charlie Niemeyer where he was talking about Kurt Swan, and it led to a kind of a five- to 30-minute tangent on uh, <laughs> on Kurt Swan as an artist and our feelings and such. And, and he followed it up almost immediately with an email saying that, you know, he didn't mean to come off as harsh. We didn't take it that way at all. We I actually like getting emails like that because, you know, Scott's right. It seems like we do get a lot of ones going, hey – why don't you like Garbage Man number 47? That was the best issue ever. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, it just wasn't all that good. You know, we're comic fans. We all have different opinions, and people get very defensive of, of, of the people they like. You start insulting Roger Stern, for example, and I'm going to be like, hey! And, you know, if you start calling John Byrne a great big prick, Scott's going to get upset with Yes. <laughs> I think it's much easier if everybody just starts falling in line with my opinion. I, that's really the plan that works for me best. So I, I, yeah, I would that's, appreciate that, that's it. Not, that's not going to happen. Scott. God damn it. <laughs> so I'm going to have Scott kick off the emails this time. All right. Right out of the gate, we've got a monster from Thomas DJ. But you know what? Like he says right in the opener, I asked for it. So here we go. This one is entitled, Don't Blame Me. And it continues, you encourage me to present my view of Smallville absolute beer gut. Justice, I mean justice, formerly on Tales of the JSA. I, didn't, uh, I don't want to go into great detail, not the least because I go on a real screed on episode 76 of Better in the Dark, due out on February 20, uh, 28th. Happy birthday, Michael, he says. Whew, this one, is, is this really this far back? Yes. Wow. Wow. My God, time's getting away from me. He says, but here's some some of the cliff notes. One, 
The episode was indicative of what I consider to be a major problem with Smallville for years. Namely, this is a typical fan-wank episode with the writers and producers giving us an intellectual hand job that's empty of nothing but in-jokes and character references. Hey, look, it's Hawkman, and he's arguing with Green Arrow, just like you remember in JLA. And hey, Amanda Waller just made a reference to the Suicide Squad. And look... John is wearing a green and red shirt and likes cookies. That JLI book was cool, wasn't it? Just so they'll stick around for the next four episodes of the uh, of the usual Chloe Love and Teen Angst these characters should have grown out of four years ago. And the sad thing is, we comic fans take these fan wanks and give Smallville just a little bit longer before giving up on it. For the record, I stopped watching toward the end of season six and have watched a grand total of three episodes since. Two, this wasn't the JSA. This was the Jeff Johns fetish pals. I understand that the limitations of the television television budget uh, dictates a smaller presentation, and I can figure that the producers were loath to bring forth Jay Garrick because they already have a flash, but how about Alan Scott? How about Ted Grant or Ted Knight? Why not Liberty Bell or the original Black Canary? Okay, the same problem with The Flash, but still. Instead of, Courtney, you must love this character because she's based on my dead sister, and if you hate her, you're hating on on the dead, and that makes you a bad person, Whitmore, dressed like the world's most patriotic bike messenger, (laughs) and apparently... Being smooth enough to lift the stellar rod from a police lockup when Green Arrow just can't. Three, there was simply no reason for Dr. Fate to be there. Okay, there was, but it was a sucky one. Namely, to stand around and tell Clark and Lois the same you-have-a-great-destiny bullshit that the producers have been shoveling to avoid showing us the fucking S-shaped monkey and putting Clark in the suit. Oh, and doing a clumsy retcon to restore John's power. See episode fan wank above. And speaking of Clark and Lois, four. There was absolutely no reason for Lois to be in the story, resulting in a subplot that seemed tack on with tacked on with rivets. And Clark, point number five, you remember Clark, right? Show's supposed to be about him? I understand that Allison Mack is a lovely person and many, many men find her smoking hot and that, maybe without thinking, the producers have given her more to do because they like having her around. But apparently, she's pretty much taken over the show. If I'm uh, watching a show about Superman, I expect it to be about Superman. See, S-shaped monkey, show me the above. (laughs) I love this. Six, why hasn't anyone mentioned... That the general plot of Absolute Beer Gut, I mean Justice, is basically a clumsily handled retrofit of Watchmen. Only this retrofit makes absolutely no sense. If Amanda Waller, and for the record I thought Pam Greer nailed it, if anything that god-awful fat suit took away from... Was she wearing a fat suit? Yeah, apparently. Uh, it wasn't fat enough, because that was my beef with it. I didn't think she looked like Amanda Waller. Anyway, that god-awful fat suit took away from the way she was channeling the wall. And I'm willing to give a visual, give up a visual match if the actor gives us the essence of the character. See, I, I thought she totally failed on all fronts, but that's just me. Anyway, wanting to bring the JSA back, why did she, you know, send the emo softie to go kill them? And speaking of Mr. Emo Softy, I guess he's talking about the icicle here. He says, Seven, there is no way in hell that this 
faux-hawked, hissing, chipmunk-cheek fetus of an icicle could kill Dr. Fate. See no reason to be there, Dr. Fate, above. Eight. The terrible acting all around. Michael Shanks is thinking he's Smallville's answer to Christian Bale, except he didn't understand the question. Britt Irving trying to be sassy, but only being annoying. I really, really had problems with them portraying the characters. The thing that really angers me about this episode is how this is most likely the only time we'll see the JSA in a live action medium. I'm going to stop right there to say, why would you think that, dude? I mean, we're we're really just now getting into this era where these characters are starting to hit the mainstream, if you know what I mean. So I don't, I wouldn't write that off just yet. But anyway, uh, he says both. You both know how much I love Golden Age characters, and the piss poor way the team has been uh, a big wait, and the piss poor way the team has been a big letdown. Anyway, begin mocking now and keep up the good work. And this is from Thomas G- DJ of Better in the Dark and DJ's Comics Cavalcade. And uh, I got to say, I'm not going to mock you, dude. I, I think you've got no. some great points. You know, I, I I enjoyed the episode for what it was. But, you know, as you heard, we both had, you know, our, our issues with it and everything like that. But uh, it feels to me like, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels to me like your issues are more with Smallville proper than they were with with this particular episode. And I'm totally on board with that because despite liking this episode, I th- I still think Smallville is abysmal, but that's just me. Anyway, what do you think, Mike? Well, you know, I, I, I've listened to Thomas's rants on, on, DJ, on, on Better in the Dark, and the, the, the thing I like about being friends with Thomas is that I get a really different viewpoint of things. It's kind of like being friends with you as well is that i get you know that you know we'll, we'll we'll be on that same road together and then it'll be like well i want to eat wendy's well i want to eat mcdonald's and then you know it just kind of goes from there uh he, he, i agree with most of the points he brings up here i enjoyed the show more than he did and but i totally see all of his problems with jeff johns and star girl and and the the that aspect of his problems because it's not just his problems with Smallville it's his problems with Jeff Johns as a writer and I like I would say I like about eighty eight percent of what Jeff Johns has produced in his career that I've read but but I think that Thomas brings up a good point that sometimes in his writing and this episode is kind of indicative of that he tends to focus on the pet characters that he's kind of developed over the years. I mean, Hawkman was someone he basically brought back from the dead in comic books and star girl is his own creation. So I, I really advise you to check out cause I'm, cause I realized I was about to start going on things. He said, not in this email, but on his own show. And I, and I don't want to do that because some of you may not have listened to that. So go and listen to episodes 76 and 77 of Better in the Dark. One, it's a fantastic movie podcast regardless. And I really find him and Derek to be endlessly entertaining. But two, Thomas makes some point, some more points about the show that I think people would find interesting. And I really appreciate his vitriol. 
It's like, I don't feel it, but it's just like, it's like you hear him going on and on and getting passionate about it. And you can tell, even from the tone of this email, that he loves these characters and that all of his comments are coming from that love of those characters. So I, I, I appreciate that on, uh, on many, many levels. So there you go. Okay, our next one is from Scott, and I'm sorry, I'm not sure the, the correct pronunciation of your last name. Uh, I'm going to say Koblenzer. Co it's either Koblenzer or Koblenzer, I'm guessing. I apologize. Uh, it is titled Geekdom. And he writes, Hi guys, listening to the latest podcast and finally felt compelled to weigh in on the geek cred debate. I have to say I was very startled that you both seemed to be surprised that all your listeners thought you were talking about them. I'm afraid I felt the same way as well. At this point, I feel the need to state my geek credentials. I saw all the original Star Wars movies in the theater when they were released. FYI, Han shot first. And it's the forest moon of Endor, not just Endor. I saw Superman the movie in a theater uh, when it was released and eagerly awaited it on DVD. Though spinning the earth backwards to turn back time, even at 8, I knew that didn't work the way the filmmakers would have us believe. I consistently read comics from the late 70s to the mid-2000s, DC primarily. I grew up with the Super Friends. I blame the Super Friends for the inflated position Aquaman holds in the DC universe. I'm doing my best to steer my five-year-old daughter away from princesses, Wonder Woman accepted, and towards superheroes. I've read Elia S. Megan's Superman novels multiple times. Having said all that, after listening to the last couple of podcasts, I very much felt that I didn't measure up. You seem to feel that people's opinions only mattered if they had put in their time. This really hit home with the comments regarding the new Star Trek movie. You seem to imply that if someone liked it without having seen the original series, that it somehow meant less than an opinion from someone who had. People's opinions are exactly that, opinions. The only impact someone's opinion on the movie is lessened by not seeing the original series is if they are making comparisons or saying this is better without having seen it. Regarding the bandwagon jumping of dumb jocks, I think you're missing the point. The dumb jock is an asshole for picking on geeks, not because he liked Iron Man and wants to wear the shirt. He can wear whatever shirt he wants. What about the dumb jock who keeps his mouth shut and doesn't pick on anyone? Let's say he doesn't read the comics or anything else, but he just liked Iron Man. Can he wear the shirt? Your comments over the last couple of podcasts seem, would seem to indicate that you didn't think he should. Sorry for the rambling, but I find it very hard to put my thoughts and feelings into words on this subject. All I can say, and it seemed like a lot of your listeners felt the same way, is that the whole conversation in your stance rubbed me the wrong way. Finally, on a number of occasions, you both have said you hope people don't think that you don't like the comics you're talking about. I have to say that not only don't I think you like them, I don't think you guys like anything. You've bashed the comics, the ads, Batman, the Brave and the Bold, Smallville, the new Star Trek movie, and the list goes on. Perhaps I'm hearing what I want to hear, but the last few podcasts have been a little depressing. In an hour and a half, you have spent about 15 minutes on the comics you're reviewing. I think you spend more time on the ads. I listen to From Crisis to Crisis, and Michael really seems to enjoy those comics, and I have a good time listening to he and Jeffrey discuss them. That same feeling seems to be missing here. Just one man's opinion, Scott from New Hampshire. 
And uh, I just want to say, Scott, that a complete refund for the costs of all the episodes of Tales of the JSA that you did not like is on its way to you. All righty. The next email is from Sean Foster. It's titled Defending Batman, the Brave and the Bold, among other things. Says, greetings once more, Scott and Mike. You have my thanks for reading my last electronic missive on the show and offering comment. I must say, I do own John Byrne's Batman Captain America one-shot, and I agree it's a good read. With that out of the way, let's get to my little bit of a passionate defense of a show that seems to be much maligned on Tales of the JSA. Having grown up watching various DCAU series, I can see how some people might rag on Batman, the Brave and the Bold. Sure, it isn't the tightly scripted and carefully crafted series that the DCAU gave us year after year, but it does expose its viewers to characters who have never seen, been seen in animated form before, much like its comic book counter, counterpart did for lesser-known characters back in the 70s. It is also a wonderful break from the grim and gritty crap sack world the mainstream DCU has become in the last few years. If anything, I'd prefer kids to see this incarnation of Batman and have a good time, rather than read the drivel and hyperbole that is Grant Morrison's work on my second favorite DC character behind The Flash. Now, to address a point... Oh, did you want to say something? Go ahead. Yeah, I do, but go ahead. Now, to address a point that came up in an email from another listener, the cold openings of the show are used to showcase characters that the show's creators find interesting, but are not sure could support a whole episode. If the response on a particular character in the opening is good enough, then the character... Then the creators will do a full episode featuring that person. For example, Jonah Hex, one of Scott's favorites, as Bibbo might say, appeared in one of the cold opens, battling a version of the Royal Flesh Gang in the Old West. Folks liked it, so Jonah came back in a later episode as the guest star. Now the openings are used to set up the upcoming Starro storyline, which is pretty damn interesting plot to me. But maybe I'm just rambling now. So the shift back to more JSA-centric topic, I do hope you'll be covering the Helena Wayne Huntress backups that appeared in Batman Family and Wonder Woman after the end of the JSA's revival. I own a copy of the trade, the Huntress, Dark Knight Daughter, that DC did a few years back collecting them, and I must say, while the art at times is a bit questionable, owning to Joe Staten's tendency to draw whacked-out chins, it is an enjoyable read that really gave me a feel for the Earth-2 Gotham City of the late 70s and early 80s. Plus, the last two backups have Jerry... Ordway doing the inks over Staten's pencils, a real treat that has me wondering if that pairing was seen elsewhere in the world of DC Comics. And speaking of Earth 2 and its aging superheroes, what do you two fine fellows think of John Byrne's Batman Superman Generations uh, Batman Superman Generations trilogy? I thoroughly enjoyed it, although the third part was a bit more than iffy at times. It really seemed to capture a lot of elements of Earth 2, particularly its progression of time and superhero legacies. It also reminded me that such concepts seem to have, for the most part, been thrown to the wayside in today's comics. Anyway, that seems like a good good place as any to end this email. Until next time, be seeing you. Um, Superman, Batman, Generations. I thought it was great, and, you know, Malcolm McDowell kind of sucked. But, you know, he was only really working with the material he was given. That's Star Trek Generations, you dumbass. Oh, shit! I was gonna tell a story, but okay. Oh no, I'm sorry. If you if you got if you're going somewhere, no, I'm just, I'm just fucking with you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, do you have the same problem I have sometimes remembering what we said on what show? 
Yes, because I don't know if we discussed uh, Batman Superman Generations on this show or on Back to the Bins. I think it was Back to the Bins. I'm pretty sure it was because only because I think that we said, hey, stay tuned. We're going to have to cover that or something. But I could be totally wrong. But uh, I still have not read the third part, but uh, absolutely loved the original four issue mini. I remember not digging on the second part as much, but but I liked your idea, Mike, about going back and reading it in year order. So you'd have you'd be you'd have to jump back and forth between the two minis. But I like that idea, and I I do want to do that. I, I really want to do a whole episode of uh, Back to the Bins devoted to the first two series of uh, of Superman Gen- uh, Batman Superman. Is it Superman Batman or Batman Superman? I can't remember. I forget though. I, though that was one of the first things. The second series was one of the first things I reviewed for the Superman homepage. Ah, I remember that vividly. Because at the time I was just uh, I wasn't doing a regular series. I was like the mini series guy. Right. And uh, I remember doing that one and really enjoying the heck out of it. So, but yeah, we'll have to do that for Back to the Bins because, like you, I you know, t- I know we've said this before somewhere, but. Hey, every episode is somebody's first. Yep. Um, I I love that story too. I love that entire world. I actually get kind of sad when I when I finish reading the stories. Yeah. Because I want more. I want I want to see more of this world. I want to see more of these characters because it very much does have that Earth Two vibe to it. That you know things are progressing, and was, and I realized that most of what Byrne was going for in that was to kind of not only show the character's age and such, but to kind of do pastiches or however you pronounce that word on specific eras in comic books, right? Like you know the the, the one that takes place in eighty nine is grim and edgy, and people die and that kind of thing, right? And the fifties one is goofy, and the forties one has them fighting Hitler and. Well, not Hitler, but Nazis. So, right. yeah, really, really dig that series from top to bottom. Yeah. As I said recently, I, I consider that to be one of the best comic book works in the past 20 years. And that, that wasn't an exaggeration. I really do believe that. I thought it was a fantastic book. But, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have to cover that. Going back, uh, looking over some of his other points here, I want to throw out real quick. He mentioned the Huntress, Dark Knight Daughter, um, trade paperback. I am hunting this, people so badly. Uh, my problem is I'm a cheap motherfucker. I don't want to pay a lot for it because I don't really care for trade for uh, trades or reprints. However, I am looking for this one. If anybody can nab me this one and uh, you know, I'm looking for like $6 or under postage paid. So I know that's extremely cheap, but if somebody can help me out, I sure would appreciate it. Um, about Brave and the Bold I'm going to take exception to the line in here that uh, that the show is much maligned on Tales. I, I don't think we much malign anything. I think we could be a lot worse about maligning a whole hell of a lot of stuff. But I, I understand where he's coming from. All I can tell you is that, you know, stick with us. I have been watching Batman Brave and the Bold, desperately trying to get caught up. Um, I'm not even sure what episode. I know I finally made it to the second season, but I'm not sure what episode I'm on. Um, I've been digging it a little bit more. I'm trying to keep an open mind and I actually feel like the creators may actually be addressing some of my concerns and the concerns of other fans that don't feel that the show is true enough to, 
you know, the version of Batman that they want to see or whatever. But I know there's some exciting stuff coming up. You know, it's already been spoiled to me that Captain Marvel showed up on the show and that they uh, they actually address the whole the whole Joe Chill thing, which I'm really looking forward to. So, yeah, I'm I'm watching it, and for the most part, I'm digging it. So, no, it's 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 a good show. I, I enjoy it quite a bit. I I don't like every episode. I don't right, and, it's, and it and I definitely don't have the love for it that I do of the uh, DCAU stuff. But you know, really and truly cool stuff good stuff uh i even liked the jonah hex episode he mentions yeah and finally this week we have one from our good friend jose rivera episode 19 fantastic ads and adventures in the 50 cent bins see that's what back to the bins should be called <laughs> i like that title better so back Do you? The bins. no back to the bins i like better so oh okay no i'm not, I'm not gonna yeah now that i'm on the show scott we're changing things I you know I would I'm not averse to that actually. <laughs> anyway, we have such a nice logo or a <laughs> title card that Will Sanchez designed yes. for us. So, um, it says, "Hey guys, this issue was really special to me. This was my first Earth Two comic book. As I said before, my aunt was collecting heavily around this era. I was also reading the then current revival of the JSA. So my interest in all things Justice Society was at its peak." That's not to say that's not a lot to say that hasn't been said already, but one of the things I remember when picking up this issue was the thrill of knowing they attempted to resolve a question twenty or so years before I asked it. Were there two females named Huntress? Well, I got my answer here. Another thing about All Star number seventy three I remember loving was knowing that although this was the second part of a story, I was able to catch up very quickly, even though I didn't have the previous issue. That's something I miss from comics. While this may not be the best JSA story, I always have a special place in my heart, as when my aunt sent it and tons of other comics to me, my face lit up and I couldn't wait to read it. For once, I actually have a lot to say on the ads. It was nice to see I wasn't the only one having trouble naming the multicolored clown and the barely-dressed woman in the DC Explosion ad. To this day, I cannot figure out who the hell they are. I wish I could have picked up that Batman Strange Cases comic. I have never seen Swamp Thing interact with any other superhero. To see him in this ad lit up my eyes because at the time they were running the Swamp Man series on USA and the animated series in the morning. Oh, I'm so sorry about both. They suck. <laughs> the DC Comics Presents ad has always stayed with me as when reading this issue, I saw it and said, how, said out loud how much I wanted that comic to not to only then look at the next comic in the stack my aunt had sent me, and there it was! That issue was my first exposure to our favorite reverse flash, Professor Zoom. In fact, looking at the next two months in Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, I realized this was, where, this was the month where my aunt had bought almost all of the comics. A good majority of the stuff sent to me were from these two months, so when I see the, those Superman covers, these great Batman issues, and anything else that caught my eye, I look back to that time I was a little boy eagerly opening a box sent to me from my aunt. As to your talk of 50 cent bins, I can't tell you how much fun and how painful those things are. <laughs> my first convention was in the summer of 2001. My best friend invited me knowing how much I loved comics. Gentlemen, and I kid you not, when I first stepped in, I almost fell to my knees in wonder. Thankfully, in front of me was a dealer who had 50-cent bins above and below the table, so I didn't look too stupid. 
When I first heard of these bins, I couldn't believe it. Getting all these great books for half of a dollar or even a quarter if the dealer just wanted to get rid of, of shit? It blew my mind. I remember finding the JLA-JSA issues where it was re- revealed that Black Canary was from Earth 2, a great Batman comic with Talia and Tim Drake donning the Robin costume, among others, as my first big finds in the bins. Over the years, the hunt for great comics in these bargain boxes have been both thrilling and frustrating. As you guys have said, there is an unwritten rule of 50-cent bins that if you find almost every issue of a comic run, you're going to spend top dollar and a lot of time trying to track down that missing issue. <laughs> Sometimes you'll end up picking up one issue of a run and then hunting down all all over a convention to find the other issues. It's taken me almost eight years, and I still don't have all the minis and missing issues of now Comics Green Hornet run. When a publisher no longer exists, it makes that hunt that much tougher. Yet, we all love them. Because what one person doesn't want anymore could be the holy grail for somebody else. Mm-hmm. You guys have, could have seen my face at the last convention when I found the new Teen Titans Uncanny X-Men crossover in the 50-cent bin. It was of shock and joy. When I was a kid, my local comic shop was charging $15 for it, but Holy I never had them. Yeah. But here yet, here I am now, a 27-year-old, and I found something I always wanted for under a dollar. That's the beauty of 50-cent bins. They introduce you to new horizons and grant old wishes. Jose A. Rivera, P.S., I cannot wait for that Views from a Long Box episode of how it was back in them old days. Well, uh, also... We are eventually, somewhere down the road, we don't have it quite on the docket yet, but somewhere down the road, we will be doing an episode of uh, Back to the Bins devoted to the new Teen Titans uh, Uncanny X-Men crossover. And hey, Jose, you've got uh, an, uh, an open invitation to join us, buddy, if you'd like to. woo Yay! So, uh, so do we want to take a break now? Sure, let's take a break. All right, we're going to bring you, starting with this episode, we're going to bring you some wonderful promos for other podcasts you should listen to. So we will be right back. While attending a demonstration in radiology, student Peter Parker was bitten by a spider, which had accidentally been exposed to radioactive rays. Through a miracle of science, Peter soon found that he had gained the arachnid's powers and had, in effect, become a human spider. Stan Lee presents... Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web, any size, catches seeds, just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. Welcome to Amazing Spider-Man Classics, where every month I and some friends will be discussing every book, every guest appearance, and every cameo we can find of our favorite web slinger, The Amazing Spider-Man. Are you tired of arguing over whether Ben Riley should have taken over the webs? Do you grow weary of the brand new day with all of its controversy? Then return with us to the early days. Return with us to the classics. Amazing Spider-Man Classics at AmazingSpiderMan.Libson.com One of the defining moments of Better in the Dark was episode 12, What Made Haddon Feel Great, when Tom DJ reviewed and discussed all eight of the Halloween films at the time. It was the longest episode at that moment, and also was an experience that broke him utterly. Now, in May of 2010, it's Derek's turn. (laughs) Say what now? You think you've 
got what it takes. This May, Derek Ferguson tackles the entire Nightmare on Elm Street series. Yes, even the one with Roseanne Barr. That's right, folks. For your enjoyment, your edification, and your eternal gratitude, I am going to take the plunge, and I am going to attempt to encapsulate the entire history of Nightmare on Elm Street, the series that gave us Freddy Krueger. That knife-wielding maniac who turned from a rabbit, hideous, child killer, into a chuckling, <laughs> sadistic anti-hero <laughs> that we all grew to love and admire. That's right, I'm going to do it. All eight Nightmare on Elm Street movies leading up to the remake that's going to be coming out with Jackie Earl Haley as the new Freddy Krueger. Better in the Dark. What made Springfield famous? Coming soon from Earth2.net and BITDsite.com. Every town has an Elm Street. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com And we are back with Adventure Comics number 465. The penultimate Justice Society appearance in this book. Um, apparently by this point, DC had kind of changed its mind. It, it switched from being 68 pages and no ads <laughs> to a DC dollar comic. Featuring Dead Man, Flash, Aquaman, and the Justice Society, so Wonder Woman had been dropped. Notice how crowded the Fish Highway is in the uh, Aquaman picture. By the way, it's kind of like Atlanta at like three thirty in the afternoon, going <laughs> southbound on eighty five seventy five. My God, yeah, it's really going to suck when the zombie outbreak happens. Then, oh yes. So- but it's still your best buy, as it is a dollar comic, uh, and and it doesn't have a really nice back cover as the last four have. But it's got a nice Jim Aparo cover with the Flash and Dead Man and Aquaman and the faces of the JSA looking on, mocking us. <laughs> and <laughs> this one is titled "Countdown to Disaster," and I have to wonder how many comic stories in the. Uh, 50s, 60s, and 70s, and 80s had this as their title yeah. to the story. Um, an interesting story that tries to play with time in a format that you really can't do that in. But the roll call this time <laughs> around is Flash, Green Lantern, Hawkman, Dr. Fate, Power Girl, and The Huntress. 
and it was written by Paul Levitz with Joe Staten and Dave Hunt as artists. At noon, it is discovered that a poison capsule has been stolen, and it will automatically be released at 5 o'clock. After Flash, GL, and Hawkman search around for a bit, they finally get word of a ransom demand, stating that if $3 million isn't paid for, uh, by 4, Gotham has had it. So, improbably, Flash matches the vibrations of the background noise of the tape and uses that to track where the message was recorded. This is at 3 o'clock. But when they reach their destination, it turns out that the thugs they mercilessly beat were just trying to cash in on the crisis. At 3.15... Huntress and Power Girl are searching for clues at the hospital where the poison pill had gone missing and discover that the fingerprints of a woman assigned to clean the outside of the cabinet ended up inside the cabinet. At 3.30, Hawkman takes off to get Dr. Fate's help because once a fucking again, he hasn't responded to the trouble alert. (laughs) At 3.45... Power Girl and Huntress question the cleaning lady from the hospital, and it turns out that the woman had stolen the capsule, not knowing what it was to help her junkie son. By 3.50, they start working their way through the pushers and dealers of Gotham City before finally finding out from Trader Tom that the pill was pushed through the drug pipeline like everything else. At 4 o'clock, Hawkman arrives at Fate's Tower, and Fate's like, go away, you bothering me, kid. I got more important shit to do. But they have, like, this little tense stare-down thing, and then we cut to just a little after 4, at 4.02, to to an announcement that the mayor delayed this announcement to prevent unnecessary panic, but felt that we had to be told this leaves the city without time to evacuate or take any other precautions. So finally, the JSA around this time get to the big bad drug dealer, and they take out his men, but are crestfallen that basically he just threw the pill out not knowing what it was. So at 4.45, they do a little more sleuthing and finally get a line on where the capsule is. And with the aid of an arrow made by Green Lantern, they find it just in time for it to start to break down, but Green Lantern manages to contain that inside uh, his power ring, a little construct thing he created. Fate shows up and tells the group, assholes, I wasn't needed, before we cut to the epilogue where Fate gives them another guilt trip (laughs) before Mr. Terrific shows up, and that's where the story ends. Whoo, boy. Um, I don't like this story at all. I, I think it's an interesting story. But it seems to be, it's another one of those stories where the JSA are doing a lot for no real big payoff. Right. It's like, you know, it's cool to see, you know, Green Lantern and Green Arrow busting up, uh, like some people who are trying to hold the city ransom. It's interesting to see Power Girl and Huntress working together. Those were actually my favorite scenes in the book. Yes, me too. Of of seeing them teamed up because it it was just really cool. And, you know... The the whole interaction with the team getting together and trying to find it. And I see where Levitz was trying to do little things like, you know, he it's like, you know, the, the city civil defense 
commissioner is sitting in his office crying because he doesn't know how to get it. That's what I want. And that's who I want the job. <laughs> I want someone that completely falls apart during a crisis. Um, but basically this plot can be boiled down to somehow a poison pill that's going to dissolve at five o'clock has been, has gone missing from the hospital. What fucking po- what pill are you creating that has like yes. a five hour time limit on it that if it leaves a certain area it's going to dissolve in five hours yeah i have that my note on that was uh to quote the immortal poet captain james t kirk um excuse me i i'd just like to ask a question what <laughs> the fuck kind of hospital are you running <laughs> you're developing dissolving capsules that will kill thousands of people in seconds a hospital does this <laughs> Woo. okay so we have like this kind of barely tenuous MacGuffin that the characters are, are searching for. And so poison pill, they find some ransomers, uh, ransomers. That's not even a word. They find some people who had sent in a ransom demand for the city. They didn't fucking do it. They find that an old cleaning lady to help out her junkie son. I kept expecting Steve Martin to show up and go cleaning woman. <laughs> They don't have it. None of the drug dealers they talk to have it. The big drug dealer and drug pusher doesn't have it. And it's in, like, the fucking sewer. I mean, that's all it is. It's just like, what the hell is going on here? I don't understand. And it makes me hurt inside. Oh, man. Oh, God. This is not the... Well, we just completely blew the theory that we don't that we like anything involving these It's characters. You know, and it's... I do like it, but I like it in... All right, here, here's – I'm sorry. I don't want to – do you have more notes because I don't want to jump No, that's it. it. Okay, that, that, all right. that, that's really all I had to say. Whew, okay, well, I've got a laundry list here, so okay. <laughs> but, yeah, I, yeah I, I don't want to have that reputation. I really don't of being, oh, you guys hate everything because I don't hate everything. But, okay, you know, when a story just is kind <clears> of <throat> – I'm just going to call a spade a spade. When a story is just kind of stupid, you know, I, I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. So page 31, panel 2. The Flash says, uh, we don't have a chance. Yeah, that's the spirit, Flash. That's what I want to hear the superhero saying. Is, you know, Why the hell am I even wasting my time? Everybody's just going to die. Um, but, you know, there's a nice golden agey feel to this story. You know, if you okay. like that kind of thing. You know, I don't know if that's what Levitz was actually going for, but that's what it feels like to me. I think it's to the detriment of this story if you don't like that kind of thing. And I think that therein lies our problem with it, is that neither one of us are really big fans of the the goofier Golden Age stuff where you really had to kind of turn your fucking brain off, you know, to get past a lot of elements. This is definitely one of those turn your brain off stories. Um, But is it a bad story? I don't know. You know, I mean, I still dug it. I like seeing, you know, the team together in action. I think the art was really good and stuff like that. But, yeah, it's just the the MacGuffin, as you say. It doesn't really kind of work. There's a lot of vast leaps in logic to save the day once again, not the least of which is, you know, at the 11th hour when they're really fucked. I mean, they're, they're, they're realized that they're completely stymied and they have literally like minutes left before this capsule's going to go off. You know, they solve the thing by, by the huntress pulling animal fur out of a trash can and going, aha, let's track this. And, and it just so happens to pay off. 
I mean, how many friggin' animals could have been into that trash? You know, I mean, they're they're in an alleyway. I'm yeah. sure there's like cat fur, dog fur, yeah. you know, raccoon fur. It's it's a it's really. I'm sorry, it's really silly. Um, however, the panel of the huntress provocatively kneeling on page 39 it makes me all kind of tingly. If you know what I'm saying, I love that picture. I, uh, I'm I'm kind of uncomfortable right now, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> Traitor I'm glad I'm glad we're not in the same room because well I'm still not wearing pants. For oh, I'm really glad we're not in the same room. <laughs> but for it's okay, people. When I joke about not being in pants, I'm in sleep shorts. I'm not wearing like jeans or, or khakis or anything because we're recording this in the second week of April, uh, in 2010, and this is the time of year where the weather is either comfortably hot. Or oh my god, I want to like move to Alaska right freaking now. <laughs> Ice station zebra, here I come. And the room I am in to record for right now, because of how the house used to be set up, it has a fridge in it, which is sounds like you know oh, the fat guy's got to have a fridge in his office. It's just kind of how things worked out within the house because we had an extra fridge and no place to put it. Um, so when I shut the door to record, so I don't bother the other people in the house, all that heat coming off the fridge just stays in the room. So I am baking right now. <laughs> Flip me over. I'm done on this side. Exactly. <laughs> oh, shit. Uh, all right. Tell me that Trader Tom on page uh, 40 here. Doesn't look like the love child of Prez and Jericho from the new Teen Titans. <laughs> he does. Oh my god! I was I was trying to figure out what you know what seventies g- generic seventies drug pusher character because it, it really feels like Staten was just watching like you know uh, Canon and you know Streets of San Francisco and all that together. <laughs> The feeling of what these thugs look like. And there's another problem with it. The JSA really, I mean, I realize that the early JSA adventures in the 40s, they rarely went up against supervillains, but they didn't really go up against anybody big right. in this one. Right. And, yeah. I, and I think that's been kind of the fault of this run as a whole. Since we're getting towards the end of it, we can actually kind of talk about stuff like that is that the good thing about it is that it's the JSA, they're together, we're getting some really exciting new characters, and the team itself is progressing. The problem with it is that they really haven't faced threats that live up to the team they're supposed to be. Right. They're fighting, they're fighting like inferior five-level villains almost. It's it's like Star Trek franchise syndrome. You know, you're not officially a Star Trek franchise until you've saved the Earth at least one time, you know? Yeah. And so far, to my recollection, they haven't exactly saved the Earth. I mean, that one story where the Earth was going to be destroyed or whatever, they saved it by, like, not fucking doing anything, which is, you know, that's really, that's pretty lame, really. That's kind of yeah. boring, you know? Story-wise, I want to see Superman punch something, not sit down and put his hands in his laps to, you know, to to resolve the situation. But uh, last couple of notes here. Um, The mayor, you know, in our tradition now of calling a spade a spade, is a fucking idiot. Yeah. He delays the announcement of the situation to avoid a mass panic 
but then lets the media run the story at the 11th hour. I mean, I'm wondering how many people died in the ensuing pandemonium and chaos because yeah. of that brilliant decision, you know? <laughs> what a dipshit. And uh really, honestly, the most unbelievable thing of all to me is in this story is that not one of the junkies whose hands this pill passed through on its trip to the to the trash heap thought about swallowing the fucking thing i mean they're junkies right yeah uh, i that just didn't i don't know it didn't make sense to i wonder what this one will do to me basically. yeah exactly i would have loved to have seen that what would that pill designed to kill thousands of people do in one person's stomach that'd be pretty wicked they'd probably blow up like violet from uh from Willy Wonka and Chocolate Factory. <laughs> That's the second reference I've heard to that lately. Creeps me out. Um, am I reading this right? Is Dr. Fate actually implying that the death of the JSA or that we're going to witness in the story that they referenced, the JLA story that they referenced, might not have happened if he had been able to complete his spell that Hawkman pulls him away from? Is, um... is that what he's saying? Let me see that again. Let me read it. He those says were, uh, those lives were not exhausted to my entrusted to my production, yet someone's life was, and that is the doom I fear. I guess. Actually, That's, now uh, that I you read that, I take exception to that too. Is that uh, he says the portents still show it was a grave error for me to have left my tower and spell, my friends. And Flash says, but think of the lives you helped save. And he says those lives were not entrusted to my protection. The fuck they weren't. You're a superhero <laughs> on the Justice Society of America. What What are you talking about? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, if there's one character's uh, portrayal that I haven't enjoyed these past couple of issues, it's been Dr. Fate. I realize he's supposed to be written all aloof and mystical and magic-y and stuff like that. But he seems to just be getting more... Dickish. dickish yeah and i kind of maybe they were headed maybe they were you know if this hadn't gotten canceled or, or whatever happened to the title you know maybe uh maybe they were going somewhere with that maybe he was going to end up having some sort of battle to you know regain some semblance of humanity type of thing or something but the fact that he didn't really makes him seem like kind of a jerk but uh, yeah a little bit and then that, that's sort of the problem with uh with this story in particular is, is, you know, at the end of it, we, we go through, we go through a lot of rigmarole to get Dr. Fate into this story. Right. And he wasn't needed. So it's like, what's <laughs> right. the point of having him in the story? Right. I mean, it doesn't really set anything up that couldn't have been set up in another way. You could have had Dr. Fate show up at the end of the issue and have his usual, you know, Oh, something bad is about to happen to someone we know and then the guy that hasn't been on the team for the entire run of all-star comics and adventure comics comes and goes hey everybody what's up peace <laughs> mr t in the house what what <laughs> but not, not yeah, he's nothing like, like that but. not at all like that nope <laughs> <laughs> but, you know to, to hopefully to avoid sounding like a like a total hater on this story um like you said, Mike, I really liked seeing more of the Huntress Power Girl dynamic. That's always really cool. Um, and the art in this issue, or in this story, rather, I think saves the story from complete whatever. Because, man, you know, Dave Hunt is a great match as Inker 
for uh, for Staten's pencils. Oh, I really enjoy that. that. I'll agree with that. That I, I can see that. So yeah, right. not not the greatest story, but it does have you know some nice elements at least visually to it. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Do we want to talk about the ads in this one? Yes. Yes. Okay, you take the first one because <gasps> I know you're chomping at the bit. For yes. It. Oh, you just weren't a comic during this era if you did not have this awesome, awesome ad. A 23rd century odyssey now. Star Trek, the motion picture. And this is the awesome one that this Enterprise they show. It's it's canted at an angle. looks really cool. But it's really, it's uh, sort of a prototype. It It doesn't quite resemble the 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 enterprise that we would see in the motion picture it's almost an amalgam of that enterprise it, basically what it is is it's the enterprise from the tv show but with the nacelles of the motion picture enterprise but i really love this and then it has you know like they used to do on movie posters back in the day it has little tiny mug shots of everybody at the bottom you know saying you know shatner is kirk and Everything leading all the way down the list to uh, Persis Kambata as Ilea and uh, Stephen Collins as Decker. I have been trying like hell to find an actual poster of this for years. And every once in a while I see them pop up on eBay, but they're always like crazy expensive. But one day I'm hoping that uh, my walls will be adorned with this awesome, awesome picture because I love this. And anytime I see this picture, it just always brings me back to you know the comics of this period because this ad was freaking everywhere, man. Yeah, there was like six. There was a couple different types of Star Trek ads. Yeah, that would run through it. the The Marvel ones seemed to have that that poster that eventually served as the cover for the novelization. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I prefer this one. Yeah, I do too. Because I think it it looks more. For me, it's more dynamic, and I like all the shots of the the characters at the bottom and stuff. I remember. I don't know if I was if, if it was when the movie was coming out or I just found an old comic a couple years later. But I remember seeing this ad in like a Hulk issue and thinking, "Wow, that looks that looks different from the movie posters that I see." Right. And it was like four years later. So <laughs> <laughs> let's see what else do we got in here? Kind of a boring Slim Jim and Grit. Slim Jim and Grit. Who gives a Crap about Slim Jim and Grit. Slim Jim and Grit. Uh, there Sounds is a like host. a TV show, doesn't it? Like a like a cop show or something. Yeah, Slim Jim and Grit. Um, dun, dun, dun. Or a Western. It sounds like a Western from the 70s with like Paul Newman and uh, somebody. <laughs> um, we got a hostess ad, but it's a baseball card one, so yeah. we don't care. Eastern... Cover Eastern Cowgirl Fern introduces fantastic new collar tips to dress up your shirt. If you're a dork. Yeah. Well, yeah. Did you know of anybody in the 70s that tried to go for the whole cowboy look? No. Not a person. Yeah. Not a person. Yeah. No. See, that was a big thing in my high school when I was about to graduate. It was the early 90s. And country music had taken off in popularity again. And I lived in Pennsylvania, so being a redneck was kind of chic almost <laughs> to a certain group of people. They'd come to they'd they'd literally come to school with like the the U.S. flag on one side and the rebel flag on another. And I'm like, guys, you got to kind of pick a side in that one. Really <laughs> <laughs> 
anyways, uh, there is a, a subscription ad for The Flash, and we're going to be talking about this a little more in the Elsewhere section of this episode, but this was a really awesome time to be reading The Flash, because it was right around the time that Iris West was killed. And for a year, it was the story of Barry Allen alternately searching for her killer and just dealing with the fact that his wife was dead. And it was just a. I suggest, you know, it starts around Flash 275, pick up all the way to Flash 300, because the stories in there are just fan freaking tastic. I love them. That's like that's like one of my favorite eras of the Barry Allen Flash. Not because I hate Iris West, just because I thought the stories were good. Yeah, it's really kind of shook the world up a little bit. The the Flash. Oh yeah. Because that had never happened before to a superhero. Never had his wife die. Now you have it, like, on Wednesday. <laughs> so, but that's pretty much it, except for, like, a... And uh, the letters page, there's heart-stopping ag- action from the su- DC Superhero Superstars with a Wonder Wo- issue of Wonder Woman and an issue of The Flash. I'm not reading nothing that's going to stop my heart. I'm... <laughs> I hope not. I'm just saying. That sucks. Well, you know, I just realized something that the whole, you know, McDonald's coffee spilled on the old lady thing goes way, way back further than I realized because the very last page of this before the back cover is the 100-piece toy soldier set. At the bottom, it says, imaginary battle scene shown. I'm like, okay, why? Why why you got to give me a disclaimer on this? Kids, do not attempt to wage war on a neighboring nation at home. What the fuck? It's uh. (laughs) (laughs) just stupid. (laughs) Well, well, you know, it's not out of the question, Scott, to think that maybe some people were taking, you know, I don't know, I'm spitballing here, taking their army men, dipping them in gasoline and lighting them on fire. I wouldn't know anybody who would do such a horribly irresponsible thing and almost burn down my grandfather's, I mean, their grandfather's garage. I just don't know anybody that would do that. (laughs) Oh, my God. How did I not go up like a, like a. Oh, like yeah, a, I, was, I was about to say, you and Chris were probably coated in, in yes. like uh, gasoline fumes. And yes. the fact that you both didn't go up like Roman fucking candles is kind of a shock to me. Yeah. Yeah, my my, uh, my guardian angel was, was putting in some serious fucking OT when I was a kid. That's, that's for sure. Uh, apparently Steve Austin is guest starring in the Daisy Air Rifle ad on the back cover. Oh, I so. didn't see Let me see that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I know that's supposed to be Johnny Unitas, but it kind of looks like Steve Austin. It does totally too. look like Steve Austin. What the hell has he got in his other hand? It looks like a looks like a Babe <laughs> Ruth like or a Slim Jim. <laughs> what the hell is that? No, it's 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 the um, that's how you would cock the the air rifle. Oh yeah, he's got the, the butt. That's what. Yeah, okay, that's what. It, or not the butt. Yeah. The st- whatever the fuck that thing's called. I don't know. That's how much I know about air rifles. But yeah, you're. I right. was never allowed to have one as a child, so. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. Uh, no, I think they were afraid I would shoot somebody else's. <laughs> not on, not on purpose, by the way. But I, I have, I had, and have like the the hand-eye coordination of, like, Corky from Life Goes On. So <laughs> it's, uh, 
It's it, no, I shouldn't. I shouldn't have something like that. At all. <laughs> well, are we ready to move along to uh, the next thing? Yeah, let's go, let's go to the the. This is it. Oh, this is the final one. It is. It's bitter. It's bitter. Really coming to. This is really the first chapter of this podcast coming to a close. It is. It truly I mean, there's is. a lot more. And we're about to go into like an interlude period. But if, if, if we were if this podcast was a book on this era, this would be the end of the first section. So But I, talk about it will, because that's us. I don't know that I think still your best buy is the greatest slogan in the world. You know what I mean? It's it's very to, yes. to my mind it's very akin to well we don't suck too bad I don't know is that is it just me No I, I, I you know I think they're trying to appeal to the fact that you know money's getting tight so yeah for a dollar you're getting four different stories isn't that awesome and <laughs> No not, but this not really but yeah. this one has a hostess ad Ah I can't wait to get there getting back to the, the return of the hostess ad It's about Yay. Freaking time. Well, this oh, is shit. Adventure Comics number 466, the December, what is this, 1979 issue, and features a gorgeous cover by Jim Aparo. Not a wraparound cover, unfortunately. That ended uh, two issues ago when they brought the ads back to the magazine. So it was a bit of a trade off. But really nice to see uh, Aparo doing Aquaman again. Really nice picture there. Also, see. Uh, Dead Man and the Flash battling the Weather Wizard. The JSA reduced to a cl- cover blurb. It's really kind of sad. It just says the uh, yeah. Plus the big seventeen-page bonus: the man who defeated the Justice Society. So for their last appearance here, don't even get on the cover. That's pretty sad. Um, it in- is sad. Yeah, it is very sad. However, inside we got Mike Nasser. Doing the Flash, and uh, this kind of surprised me. I'd totally uh, forgotten about this story. Look at, look at, look at page three of that. Does the Weather Wizard not look like a like a ten year old boy in that shot? He does, and this this was going to owe into my other comment. The unfortunate thing is, and actually, I messaged uh, Mike Nasser last night. Believe it or not, I have not yet heard a response. But I'm curious to know what he thought of Vince Coletta's inks on him in this story because Nasser. One of my favorites, i got to be honest. I love his art. However, it's not the greatest in this, and I'm putting that solely at the feet of, uh, of Vince Coletta. I just I think he's a poor match, but then again, I think he's a poor match for just about any artist. I just never thought a lot of Vinny Coletta's art. Sorry, Vinny, if you're alive or dead, but just didn't. Um, also, before we get to the uh, JSA story, this Dead Man story is great. It's uh, called uh-huh. Never, Never Say Die. It's by Len Wein and uh, Jose uh, Luis Garcia Lopez. This is one of my personal favorite Dead Man, uh, Dead Man stories of all time. But definitely, I think this is the best one of the adventure run that he had. So uh, if you get the opportunity, check it out sometime. Really good story. And uh, I just love the way it ends with, with Dead Man flying off, just wailing. It's uh, It's really cool. He actually did that a couple of times in this adventure run, but this was the best time and the best reason for him actually doing that. He's really just anguished in that last panel. But that brings us to, sadly, the final adventure of the Justice Society of America in Adventure Comics. This is a story entitled The Defeat 
of the Justice Society, an adventure into the past with Paul Levitz and Joe Staten, amongst other people working on the issue, on the story. And a story set immediately after the events in the Jacques JLA JSA storyline over in Justice League of America, which uh, we will be covering, by the way, we begin with a gorgeous title splash page showing Dr. Fate, Hawkman, Superman, Starman, Wonder Woman, the Star-Spangled Kid, Green Lantern, Black Canary, The Flash, Wildcat, The Atom, Sandman, Robin, Our Man, and Dr. Midnight, all flying up, up, and away from the JSA headquarters. Inside, Power Girl innocently asks why the whole team only seems to get together for funerals. The Huntress, rather insensitively, I thought, replies that sometimes it is painfully obvious that Power Girl was raised by a machine in a nod to Power Girl's origin story in Showcase Issues 96 through 99, which we will also be covering pretty soon, we promise. Huntress points out that, sadly, most families only ever get together for life events such as funerals or weddings. After a race to monitor duty, which the Huntress wins, by the way, Power Girl asks Huntress uh, about something she overheard today at the gathering that the JSA had actually been inactive during the 1950s. For 12 years, states the Huntress, and so begins the flashback tale of the last days of the JSA. While the JSA was having their final published adventure battling the key in All-Star Comics number 57 back in the day, Forces were conspiring to take the team out. One day, as the team, consisting at this time of Adam, Dr. Midnight, Black Canary, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern, and Hawkman, were out running around, a strange satellite appears in front of them, beckoning them to follow. They do, right up into outer space, and are awestruck to find waiting for them a brand new swanky-looking orbiting headquarters. Of course, this all turns out to be a trap, complete with... Fleischer Superman cartoon-looking robots, one of which has <clears throat> wooden parts, <laughs> which neutralize Green Lantern's power. Uh, <laughs> I'm not making that shit up either, I swear. And the team is sent on a one-way trip into the final frontier. But, of course, they escape, they track down the guys responsible, and they round them all up. However... The real trouble for the JSA comes when they turn all these bad guys over to the feds. Seems that one of these guys is actually a highly placed known agent of a hostile foreign power, and the JSA is subpoenaed and brought before a special hearing of the Combined Congressional Un-American Activities Committee to explain their connection to this man. Well, he tried to kill us, says Hawkman, but this isn't quite clear enough for the committee. Hawkman tries his best to explain and answer the committee's questions, but when he speculates that perhaps the foreign power the agent works for supplied all the advanced tech used to build the orbiting death trap, the committee seizes on this as a statement with serious implications. It is then requested that the JSA be cleared for security and that revealing their secret identities to the committee uh, will begin that process. Shocked and not just a little bit pissed off, Hawkman respectfully declines, and in a poof, the Justice Society of America vanishes forever, or for a while anyway, with the message that 
you won't be hearing from us again. Power Girl, back in the present, can't believe that they just gave up and went away for all those years, but Huntress explains that it was a different world back then. At this point, I think that writer Paul Levitz gets on his political soapbox a bit too much and a bit too obviously, for my taste anyway, and that this tale and the JSA's run in Adventure Comics ends with both women agreeing that there were some things about this crazy planet that they'll never quite understand. And that's the end. And for me personally, I really like this story. I, I, it has kind of a, uh, you know, with a whimper, not with a bang kind of ending to it. But I still like it a lot. I think it's a, a really good story. And I like that it shades in that era a little bit. Adds some explanation to why the JSA, you know, went away. What was the reason why they just, you know, weren't being published for all those years between... All-Star 57 and All-Star 58. Um, this story does get revisited in uh, a four-issue miniseries yes. called America versus the Justice Society, which, you know, somewhere down the road we will be covering that. Um, really nice artwork in this issue. Um, I believe that this is a story where Staten actually inked himself, but it looks fantastic. I really, really like it. Especially, I, I like how the Huntress looks in this particular story. Um it's nice seeing the whole team together, even if just briefly in that opening spot. And I agree with Power Girl that it should have happened more often. I think perhaps if it had, maybe the book or this adventure run or whatever, I think maybe it would have lasted a little longer. And it probably would have been a lot more successful had we gotten more of the team. Because I think what hurt it was when they whittled down for that brief period where it was only two or three guys at a time. You know, you had like... What was it like? Two or three stories where it was Star yeah. Spangled Kid, Hunters, and Wildcat. Who, you know, depending on who you find interesting and who you don't, I think that that was a big contributor. But uh, I think that this was a really good issue, you know, a really good story in this issue, and uh, in a in a nice way to kind of wrap the whole run up. I think. I like the story too. I really do. I, uh, I thought it was a very strong story, and this is where I'm actually going to go kind of counter to what I've been talking about in previous stories, where I felt that you had all of this really great buildup, and then, you know, kind of a kind of a story where the Justice Society pretty much solves it by doing nothing or by kind of running around like chickens with their heads cut off. I really would have liked it if this guy had said, I'm going to destroy the JSA. Give me my, you know, give me a million dollars to start and then 10% of your profits afterwards. But after I'm done, you know, JSA is going to be toast. And instead of having this whole thing with an orbiting satellite and all that, just have him start talking to the people on the committee and putting the bug in their ear that the JSA are un-American. That's where I thought the story was going, actually. Yeah. And that would have been better because it's not that the JSA was defeated by Vandal Savage or by Per Degaton or by the Injustice uh, Society or the Injustice League, but by just a guy that got, you know, you know what? Simplest way to do it is to take advantage of the current political climate and and do away with this team by attacking them as Americans. And I think that would have been a better way to do it. Yeah, because. The fight on the on the 
satellite was actually the weak part of the issue. That's why I brushed past it so fast in my in my review or you know my uh, synopsis of it because yeah, it is. It's the weak part of the issue, and it yeah, I totally agree with you because I had the same thought that. I, I thought the story was starting where this guy's plan, you know, where he goes and requests from the mob people was, you know, give me this money. I'll take care of your JSA problem. And then he was going to be the, the guy to stir the shit up with the un-American committee. And it didn't turn out that way. It goes into this wacky thing with the satellite. And, yeah, I totally agree with you. It would have worked better if it went straight into that committee story. I mean, you could have had a big fight with them. Yeah. Um, you know, even, even retelling that fight with the key that they mention, and then have and then having and again, I, I hate playing armchair writer by doing this, but it's just sometimes the the thought is so strong that I really just gotta gotta get it out there. It's gonna kill me. The only the only problem I have with this issue, and it's like the real problem, not like a plotting problem or something that I would have liked to have seen done differently. The only problem I have with this issue is that. They're like, you know, if you're good Americans, you will show the committee your faces, and then we may begin the process of clearing you. There's no conversation amongst the team. It's not like we're going to give you a, you know, we're going to take a five minute recess. You guys go talk about it. And maybe that's because of the fight with the robot. There wasn't room for it. But I would have liked to have seen a little debate amongst the group because it basically, like Hogman says, okay, we quit and they all disappear. You don't even really find out how they disappear. There's none of the magic characters there. Right. They just disappear. I mean, that's dramatic. I think it would have been more dramatic for Hawkman to come back after the speech and deliver like this this stirring, you know, we are Americans, we are patriotic. But what what this committee is doing is, you know, it, you know, stirring up the worst in us as a as a country and ruining people's lives simply for political gain and stuff like that and then have it so you know fuck you we're gone you know see you later we'll be back in a couple of years when you guys are, aren't idiots anymore so <laughs> that's just my opinion though no, I, I think you make a valid point for that I, I would have liked to have seen that sequence spread out a little bit more and I I was thinking about this. I, I think probably the only reason we didn't get more of, of the talky bits and we got the obligatory thing with the satellite and all that is because this, you got to put the, the, the issue in the story in, in its contest, context rather, historically. And I think it is that back in this day, the, this was before you could get the story where the team just, you know, talked or, you know, you, you got the pal issue or whatever. It, there was the obligatory fight in every story back in these days. You know, you just, you know, today we can get a, an issue where there's no fight and, and a couple of characters just have character moments or something like that. But you didn't really get that back during this time. You know, it, it pretty much you, you had to there had to be an action element to it. Or I think that the the publishers felt that. Kids wouldn't dig it, you know. The, oh, the kids, kids, kids would be bored. Yeah, the kids aren't going to understand it, right? And and there probably would have been letters. I, I, right. I'm willing to bet there would have been letters. Yeah. Like, why? Why did the JSA fight anybody? Right. You know, why were they just sitting around talking? That's not what I read comic books for. Exactly. So. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> You've got. You make a very excellent case, sir. So. And that that's a shame. But because, a good story. Yeah, it is. It is an excellent story. 
and uh, just just sad that follow the adventure, the continuing adventures of the Justice Society uh, members and other DC comics, and it's just like oh, yep, <laughs> yep. I also have to point okay. out uh, the next uh, the next feature with, and I failed to do it last issue because it had the same team, but uh, Don Newton and Dan Adkins and the art as the artists on Aquaman. Nice, nice looking stuff. Really nice stuff. I don't yeah, know how the, pretty good. I, I don't know how the story itself is, but I really like the art. It's very nice. But uh, all righty. Yeah. So we got the ads. Yeah. What do we got? What do we got? Okay. We got a Lego Expert Builder series ad. These were inside the comics a lot in the early '80s. My aunt would give me these for my birthday, uh, and I would have a lot of fun. I was a, I liked playing with Legos when I was a kid. Uh, I never got like the the Roadster or anything, but it was kind of neat to put these things together because they actually did stuff. They you know they were designed to to work. Uh, we got a Fruit Stripes gum ad. <laughs> <laughs> I used to chew that stuff. We got love that. Do they even make that anymore? I think they do. I think they do. Go to like next time you're like at a quick trip or something. See if they have. Yeah, I'm gonna have to see if they do. Yeah, I like the superhero. Yeah. Yeah. So that that I want those today. I wish we sold those at work so I could have something. On a quick glance, I. I'm sorry. On a, on a quick glance, I thought it was one of those uh, those spray foam cans I was talking about a while back. You know, like the the foam that the kid could play with in the bathtub or whatever. That that's what I thought they were on a quick mm-hmm. glance until I saw the glue. I don't remember the the glue sticks, but I agree that I like the artwork on them. It'd be cool. All right, then we got the hottest thing this summer. That Superman saying the chills of winter were broken by this event. And Power Girl from the cover of All Star number fifty eight, I might add, mm-hmm. uh, saying the annual JLA JSA team up you all waited for. It's our greatest adventure. It has uh, J- JLA number one seventy two and one seventy. Is that one seventy one? I think it's one seventy one and one seventy two, if I remember right. Yeah. After years of fantastic team-ups between the Justice League and the Golden Age heroes of the Justice Society, they're finally facing a menace they can't defeat, at least not without one of their members dying in the process. You know that Power Girl that you pointed out, that is the one from uh, All-Star 58, Mm -hmm. and they left the circle there so where you can see your boobs. They didn't cover it in like they, they, they did later on. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, that Huntress is from the uh, that Huntress head is from one of the covers too. When they just had like the heads of the characters. Yeah. So uh, a lot of cutting and pasting on that one. The guys yeah. In, the guys in the uh, the guys in the bullpen were working overtime on that one. Yeah, several different Next artists big... and art styles in one picture right there. Uh, the next one is I am Man- Madam Xanadu, and I welcome you to take an unexpected journey through the doorway to Nightmare, where you will meet a werewolf hunter and the sight and sound of moonlight and laughter. <laughs> got unexpected number 194. I'm Abel of the House of Secrets, also in this, in- in this issue, presenting tales that even scare me. I thought that was Abel's entire thing. Yeah. Was that he was a Brady cat. Oh, well. 
But uh, we, the cover is great. You got this woman singing in front of a ca- or speaking to a microphone in front of a camera. Half her face is melting off. She seems completely oblivious to this. And behind her, um, haha, the curse is working. She'll never upstage me again. And it looks like on the bottom that it, that it looks like the curse of Ozzy and Harriet. It does look like that's what it says. Oh, that's funny. You like that Carter's uh, marker ad on the next page with that dumb-looking astronaut? Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> God, that looks stupid. It looks like he's sitting next to an ad ad, though. <laughs> <laughs> that would rule. <laughs> we went to the moon and we found an ad ad. That's what we should put on the moon. There is an ad under the grit ad it's like in the history of america's wars one place has turned out more great combat forces than any other dc comics now the best and the toughest blackhawk the suicide squad hop kerrigan captain storm easy company superman even though clark kent was 4f are back in action in the very first collection of dc's greatest war comics reprinted in their original blazing full color and the the name on the on the cover is michael uslin who would who was uh, around this time probably just starting production on Swamp Thing because he was the producer of that and of the Batman films. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting to see. Ah, next page. Underoos. Underoos. The underwear that's fun to wear. I, I had underoos. If you want to feel like dirty, like really dirty about yourself, go watch underoos ads on, on, on YouTube. <laughs> Because those are creepy. I'm sorry. They make it's, it's like I, I think Benson and Stabler are about to bust in my door every time I watch one. But we got um, the 1979 comic book price guide. Yep. Down there too. I don't, Only eight ninety five. I don't remember what the first year I have is. Whatever the first one is that I've got has has like good girl art on it but I'm not sure what year that actually is but yeah I've never seen this one that's shown here I tell you what I want man I totally want to be able to time travel like right freaking now and go back and buy up all these Mego pocket superheroes for 2.99 each <laughs> cuz man yeah. those things are cool you know they're they're not the full size Mego with the clothes and all they were the little ones that are they're like slightly hunched over and they're all like action poses and so I can remember having some of those. I had like Captain Marvel, I'm sure I probably had a Superman. But yeah, they were really cool. There's a whole bunch of those. And I had a I used to have these uh, Batman utility belts too that they're showing here. I went through those like crazy cuz the belt buckle did thing Did you have kept the Wonder working. Woman one too? Uh no, I never did. Thank you very much. Okay, just just asking, you know, maybe 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 the young Scott Gardner was a little more confused. <laughs> I was never confused. Thank you very much. <laughs> Move along. Nothing here to see. Um, we got a hubba bubba gum fighting practice and techniques, <laughs> which is, uh, I love these ads. I don't know why. Though that is how I learned to blow a bubble from gum was from a comic book. So That's not what I heard, but we'll talk about that later. Uh, the hottest thing in teas, rainbow <laughs> glitter transfer. Right past that. <laughs> Moving right along. Yes. <laughs> rainbow glitter tra- What the hell is this? I don't remember this at all. This must have been one of those failed like- fads or something. I don't remember that. Uh, you have Kiss Me Taken, Un. 
indescribably delicious. <laughs> Nobody's perfect. Uh, looks like a Harley Davidson logo. I don't know what that one at the bottom says. Uh, super chick available, nice and nasty. A touch of class is what that one at the bottom says. Gong, gong show reject. <laughs> I like that one. The kid, let's party, ice cream that's melting, wet paint that's melting, foxy lady. What is that one at the sweet honesty? What the hell does that mean? Uh, sexy and rainbow. And this just kind of reminds me of the time I was walking through Walmart. Oh, there's a kiss and an angel shirt at the top. I was walking through Walmart, and we, my wife was looking through the female undergarment section, and there was this whole section for women's underwear that have, like, sayings on them, and one that said, one said spoiled. And my reaction to that would be kind of like my reaction to the nice and nasty, is that if I get a girl and we're getting intimate and she takes off her pants and there's something down there that says spoiled. I'm going to, I'm going to pass on that. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> That's just, no, no, thank you. I, I understand your intent, but this isn't about the letter of the law. It's how I'm interpreting it. So. <laughs> but we really don't have too much else. No we got military vehicles. We got a, a truck monogram, uh, model ad, and that's it. And that means one thing, and one thing alone, Scott. The Hostess ad. Return of the Hostess ad. It's a Green Lantern one, too. And those are usually messed up. <laughs> this is one stupid-looking monster. here. You know what? I'll be honest with you. I haven't even read this ad yet, so I don't know if it's good or it's bad, but just by the look of it, it's probably bad, so I'm looking forward to it. Who do you want to be? Um, does the monster talk? Let's yes. see. Oh, I'll be the monster then. Okay. It's always more fun to be the bad guy, especially a big, stupid-looking Chewbacca with three eyes monster, so that's cool. <laughs> Green Lantern versus Triclops, three-eyed keeper of the cave. <laughs> Green Lantern says, okay, Triclops, your days of gluttonous crime are over. Oh, no, my power rings run out of, run out, no energy in it. Nothing in my stomach either, Dim Lantern, and you'll fill it nicely. As Triclops and Green Lantern are locked in mortal combat, two young cave explorers appear. Look, Green Lantern's about to be Triclops' dinner. Let's use our hostess Twinkies cakes to help tempt him away. Sink your fangs into these, Triclops. I like the moist sponge cake. I liked the cream filling. Well, I'm off to recharge my power ring. I'm glad Triclops prefers golden golden Twinkie cakes to Green Lanterns. And you get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Twinkie cakes. <laughs> um, I'd just like to point out the fact that, uh, okay, everybody who keeps thinking how fucking great Green Lantern is now that Jeff Johns is writing him and all that, he just got saved by fucking kids with Twinkies, okay? Because he's too stupid to recharge his power battery. I mean, this is how lame Hal Jordan is, okay? <laughs> Case closed. I don't know if this is, you know, the, the, the one you really want to be pointing out to people, but okay. <laughs> Why? Why not? I think this is a perfect <laughs> argument right here for the lameness of Green of Hal Jordan as Green Lantern. I mean, he's he forgot to charges power ring i mean how does that happen you know i mean does he not I, carry a fucking wristwatch you know 
set a set a little beep beep timer on it. You know, when when you've got like a half an hour of energy left, it's time to go back to the headquarters and recharge, right? And then he gets he's saved by children with Twinkies. <laughs> and this is the guy that the Guardians are entrusting an entire space sector to protect, right? Oh yeah. my god. It's well, funny. you know, it's it's, 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 it's I have nothing. <laughs> I love this monster though. He he's he's Oh, he's all kinds of messed up. Yes. He's he's like a combination of like Chewbacca and Sasquatch, but he's got saber teeth and three eyes. <laughs> How's that for a fucked up visual for you? I'm a little scary. I'd love to see Jeff Johns bring him back and have him kick Al Jordan's ass again. I'd I'd, I'd totally buy that. Yeah, yeah. So you survived, you know. So you survived the Sinestro Core War and Blackest Night, but now you've got to face Triclops again. Now we're going to correct something, uh, a mistake we made last month or last week not last month last week and i'm going to correct that mistake i made right now last week in, we we forgot completely to do the two months worth of books that were associated with adventure comics number 464 so we're going to start there and uh, are you with me scott i am with you what do you see that looks good oh gosh let's see here Oh, we got Jonah Hex. We got another part of that uh, Justice League of America story that uh, Infinite, or excuse me, uh, Identity Crisis spun out of. See one of the most frightening covers ever on Superman Family 196, where this giant blade—I think it's off that helicopter up in the up in the upper left, right there—is flying down towards this crowd of people and. Superboy, I don't know, he just doesn't look like he's doing enough to stop it to me. It doesn't look like he's actually going to make it before it just slices through all these people. It's nasty looking. Good action comics cover on 497 where he's throwing the top of a building into the sun. See, I told you. Is that the, is yeah. that the sun, though, or is that, is that like a meteor? It's probably a meteor or something, yeah. but it looks like the sun. It does so. look like It looks like he's throwing the Empire State Building into the sun is what it looks like. Way to go, Superman. Throw more shit into the sun. We uh, we have a Superman cover that looks like it's saying, hey, guys, really, we could talk this out. <laughs> <laughs> what? I don't even have pockets in this outfit. <laughs> um, the two that really stand out to me are World of Krypton number one, which was DC's first miniseries, and Flash number 275, which featured the death of Iris, uh, Iris West. Yeah. And the, both are very historic in their own ways. And like I said before, this starts a run on Flash that is fan-freaking-tastic. Well, not only uh, is World of Krypton DC's first miniseries, isn't it the first miniseries? I think so. I think, was it Marvel's first miniseries, or limited series, because it's Marvel? Um, Got to make that distinction, apparently. Uh, I think their first one was uh, Contest of Champions. It was Contest of Champions, and I don't even think it says anything about being limited or anything. I I could be wrong about that, but but yeah, I remember buying that back in the day, and I don't don't think it makes that distinction, but I'd have to look at it again to be sure. But uh, but yeah, I can't 
can't remember if I've still got this World of Krypton, and I know I read an issue or two of it. I don't know that I ever finished the entire thing, but yeah, I, I picked them all up a couple like about ten years ago when I was starting on my big get everything Superman kick. So I got this Krypton Chronicles and Phantom Zone all in the same big ah. lot of buying stuff. So it was it was pretty cool to get it all like that. Awesome, at least to me. Anything else good this month? I like the cover in this Warlord, uh, the number twenty-three. There, never, uh, never read it. I don't. I think I've only ever read one issue of Warlord ever. I've I, read two, and they were both Legends crossovers. Yeah, so. I read the one with uh, what was it, Desaad? Yeah, yeah, I remember that one. But uh, but yeah, there are some uh, there's some, there's some interesting covers here. Nothing that really jumps right out at me though. Okay, next month we got a badass cover of Superman and fighting Mr. Miracle. This was my first exposure to Mr. Miracle as a child, by the way. And uh, it's still one of my favorite uh, stories from DC Comics Presents, mostly for the art. The art is just gorgeous in that issue. Was it Jose? I think it's Rich Buckler, but, man, that's really testing the old brain cell at the moment, brain muscle at the moment. Is it Rich Buckler? Awesome. Inked by Dick Giordano, the late Dick Giordano. Yeah, yeah, gorgeous love art. Yeah. Love that cover to Flash 276 where he's kicking Green Lantern in the face. Take that, Hal Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> now we're going to get all kinds of letters. What's the problem with Hal Jordan? I love Hal Jordan. You guys hate everything you hate Hal Jordan. I'm like, oh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. That wasn't bitter or anything, was it? <laughs> Uh, let's see. That's a good Jonah Hex cover. That's a great issue, by the way. I could be mistaken about that being the first tale of young Jonah Hex, but I know it is in an early, like, telling of, of the early days of Jonah type of thing. But it, it's a really... Does he have the scar? Not when he's a kid, no. no. Okay. He, he got that much later. The, the scar origin story happened in the early issues of when Jonah... Got his own title, um, Jonah Hex. I want to say that was like seven, eight, nine, or something like that. Was the issues that finally told that origin story, and that actually happened after the Civil War. He went back to his people, and something happened. God, I can't remember what it was, but so, something where the tribe felt slighted, or or the chief of the tribe felt like Jonah had done something wrong, or whatever. And they're actually the ones that scarred him. They gave him what they called the it was the mark of the beast or the mark of the mark of the devil or something like that, and they they purposely scarred his face so that he would carry this this mark, you know, almost like a like a scarlet letter type of thing. And uh, that guy on the cover of DC Special Series number seventeen looks like he's about to get punched in the face. Oh, by Swamp Thing, yeah, yeah. And uh, right under that is Superman number 338. That's where Candor gets enlarged. I just read that story for the first time not long ago, and, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I, th- I thought that was neat, because I'd always wanted to read that story and just could never seem to track it down, but that was a good story. Wow, really nice cover on uh, that Warlord number 24. That I like that one a lot. Poor uh, Scalp Hunter. You know, every Scalp Hunter cover, I, I wonder what real Indians might have thought of scalp hunter because every one of them he's it's always like uh how we showed that red skin son of a bitch and you know he's like being in this one he's like tied up in a burning burning uh house and then there was another one i think he's like strapped to a cannon or something and it's like every one of them 
is just showing like the the absolute hatred that the white man has for the red man. I'm like, Jesus Christ, you know. All righty, ready to move on? I am ready to move on. Okay, we've got the books that were on sale in June of 1979. Does that skip over? Got right. May, June, and then July. Does Adventure show? Maybe it shows up later in the month that I'm oh, just yeah, not yeah, seeing yeah, it. I don't see. Uh, oh, no, there it is. Adventure 465. It's uh, third row down about okay. half the way over. But you All know right. what? Seeing this cover right here to best is DC number one. Why Why the hell did I not pick that up for the three bucks I could have bought it at at that comic shop we went to? I really I should have. no idea. I was trying to be conservative. Uh, you know, I was trying not to spend a lot of money, and now I really wish that I had picked that up. Because that, you know, for the cover alone, that's a beautiful painted cover on that. And it's so. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a nice book. I have it sitting over in the corner, actually. DC Comics Sense um, 13. I, if I'm not mistaken, I think this is the issue where Pete Ross finally reveals to um, Superman that he has always known that he was yep. uh, Clark Kent. So, Really good issue too. Is. The two, that thirteen and fourteen are really strong issues of DC Comics yeah. presents. I hate the cover of Justice League number one seventy with Batman on the little space skipper. <laughs> God, that looks goofy as hell. Do you have that Jonah Hex and other Western tales? I was just going to comment. I need to track that down. I think the only reason I don't have it is I'm pretty sure that it's all reprints. But just the fact that it has a painted cover on it, I've got to get that because it's really, really nice looking. And uh, Jonah's busting in on uh, a husband having an intimate moment with his... Or is that a woman? Maybe, maybe that's not. No, a Let me he's that busting up. in on an Indian about to scalp somebody. Oh, okay. My, my bad. <laughs> wow. I was looking at a little tiny JPEG of it. So, I mean, maybe this is role play for the two of them. I don't know. He just not looks like he's, he's saying, "Oh, I'm sorry about that." I, uh, you know, like he just walked in on somebody in the bathroom or something. It's funny because they're he both looking did. at him like, like you know, the Indians looking at him like, yeah, "Do you mind?" <laughs> The guy on the floor is like, help me, help me, help me, Jonah Hex. Uh, I'm going to let him kill him for, <laughs> for what you did to to his squad. Well, yeah, that would be Hex. It'd be like, yep. help me, Jonah Hex. What? Did, did, did you rape her? Oh, uh, yeah, she's just an... Uh, and, he, and by that point, the door's already closed. Because <laughs> all he had to hear was, yeah, and Jonah Hex is on to the next <laughs> town. Because he doesn't give a shit. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> oh, it's hysterical. Oh, I love this cover to World of Krypton number three. Now I've got to track this down if I don't actually own it. It's um, it's an interesting series. It, you know, it, it's it's got some good points. I mean, for the time, it was if you were like a new Superman t- fan in this era, especially since the movie just came out, it probably would have been really freaking awesome. So. All righty. Anything else that month? I'm looking here and not really. Oh, I like that uh, Superboy and the Legion, number 255. That's the one where the Legion I goes back to. I hate that Cosmic Boy costume. Oh, yeah. It's it's uh, uncomfortable at the very least, yeah. I love Silver Superman on the cover of Superman 339, too. That's mm-hmm. really cool. It's a nice-looking cover. Got a, in the next month, the very first thing I see is a great Giordano cover of Batman and Robin fighting Crazy Quilt. All the other covers can't... Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think this was actually my first uh, first exposure to Crazy Quilt as well. Who I really like, by the way. I think he's a lot of fun. That uh, 
Brave and the Bold episode with Batman and Robin where they fought Crazy Quilt was a hell of a lot of fun. Like that Flash cover of 278 with uh, fighting Captain Boomerang. DC Comics presents number 14, Superman and Superboy. Superboy, yeah, love that. Because Pete Ross went back in time and switched minds with... uh, with Superboy and came back to the present. That's the only way they could exist together. Wow, uh, Jonah doesn't look too happy that they're putting him in a coffin on the, in that issue. Yeah, when you're not dead, that kind of sucks. Yeah, <laughs> not cool at all. I love that cover to uh, DC Special Series 19. I don't believe I've ever laid eyes on that before. That is really uh, nice. Ross Andrew. Yeah, I like that. I gotta, I gotta see if I can track that down somewhere. Action Comics um, 500, which I to this day I don't know that I've read that issue. It's an awesome retelling of his entire history. He's <gasps> like leading people through the Superman Museum. Oh, okay. And he retell, you know, he goes through like his entire history. It's a really, really good story. Uh, that ghost number 81 just above it looks like that skeleton is totally coming on to that guy. <laughs> he looks like he's patting him on the head, like nice boy. <laughs> Um, hey, Hal Jordan, you might want to put that fucking ring on before you try to fly, dumbass. <laughs> Idiot. Um, Idiot. Oh, Superman number 340 with, uh, that's, uh, who's that guy? NRG, Mr. NRGX. Oh, okay, that's not who I was thinking. I was thinking it was the one with, uh, what the hell is that guy who looks a lot like the human bomb? Neutron? Yeah, Neutron. Yeah, still, this is an awesome, awesome cover, though. Really like, who the hell's the artist on that? Is that Lopez, Garcia Lopez? Check. That would be Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Uh, I love that. That Wonder Woman cover is great. It's like, hey, 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 watch where those hands are going. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to show you to parade around in a swimsuit. I love it. I love it. Oh, see, I bet you. All right, let me see if I can bring this image up here. Damn it. It's not going to let me do it. For the scalp hunter one, but I think this is an, yet another one of those white people versus the the that filthy Indian type of covers. You'll pay for what you did to my daughter, you dirty redskin. See what I tell you? Well, he does look like he's just backhanded her. He's got a wrist like twisted, and like he's about to yeah. But yeah, you're right. I'm serious, man. It's like every issue was some cover like that. Get him! Hey. Skin the Indian. We, uh, we got a, a time warp number one. DC's return to trying to do uh, do a science fiction series. And in the first issue, you in the first story, we learn how to jump to the left and then step to the right. We learn how to put our hands on our hips and put our knees in tight. <laughs> and then we do the pelvic thrust until we go insane. Yay, 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 yay. Whoa. And then we do the time warp again. Sorry. I just watched Rocky Horror recently. I can tell that. (laughs) Okay, yeah, I do have the next month now. Let's see what we see here. Ooh, I don't think I have this issue of Batman. 317? That's a a neat-looking Riddler, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Best of DC number two. That's the first... I I have that. That's the first place I read uh, the Joker's Five-Way Revenge, which is a classic Bronze Age Joker tale. That Batman picture on there is recycled from somewhere, too. I want to say one of those giant oversized things. but I believe it is. But yeah, I've I seen believe. that before. <laughs> Superman being swung like a baseball bat to knock the hell out of the Atom. I like that. Well, oh, the Atom had it coming, frankly. He should be just like, like 
like bursting like a like a paintball Gra- though. Like a grape. <laughs> Gonna grape you in the mouth. Um, oh. oh that Brave and the Bold you just bought recently. Ah, uh, where is that? Where is that? Brave and the Bold. What? Right next to the I'm adventure comic. Seeing it. I don't see Oh yeah, yeah. There we go. Yeah, Batman and Doctor Fate. You're right. I did just get that one not long ago. Oh, I've I've really got to track down these uh, Jonah Hex and other Western Tales digest size books because I love the painted covers on them. I was about to say that would probably be the only reason you would need to get them though, because I'm sure you yeah. have the uh, books on the inside. I'm pretty sure. I mean, uh, to my understanding, they're purely reprint titles. Yeah. So yeah, I've I've got whatever's in there, but still, just for the covers, I'd like to have those. And Green Lantern 122, I could be mistaken, but I think that was my very first Green Lantern comic ever because it uh, not only has Superman, but it also has some sort of Phantom Zone-y thingy going on inside that, in the beginning of that issue. I forget what exactly happens now, but yeah, something to do with the Phantom Zone, and I was always a sucker for Phantom Zone stories back in the day. It's a really nice Unknown Soldier cover. Right there at the bottom. Oh, yeah. Nazis. Nazis are always awesome. They are always awesome. There should be more Nazis in the world. Only, but realize that when I say they're always awesome, they're always awesome to see somebody kick their ass. <laughs> Nazis, are, Nazis are the last <laughs> acceptable villain. Somebody out there is going, did he really just say there should be more Nazis in the world? What the hell is that all about? No, Indiana Jones got to find some, fight somebody. You know, might as well be Nazis. Yeah, it really should be Nazis. I, I, I think we've all not all, commies. Damn it. Yeah. Well, you know, he fought commies in. Oh my God, what the hell was the name of that? The Infernal Machine. And okay. it was cool in that. It was cool in that. It was just. It's purely that movie, man. I'm telling you, that movie just, just whatever. You know. <laughs> Let's see. What else do we have here? Scalp Hunter. All right. What is this guy saying to Scalp Hunter on this issue? This bullet has your name on it. See, well, then not quite as racist as some of the other ones. You should be saying Redskin. This bullet has your name on it, Redskin. Just to remind you that, yeah, yeah, if you don't see the big feather and the and the headband and the long black hair and the tomahawk and all that, that he's an Indian. It's like they had to remind you of this every issue. <laughs> but uh, I'm sure the writers at the time thought that they were like talking about the plight of the American Indian in the old West and just not realizing how it was going to come off a couple decades later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. Oh, uh, what else we got here? That's about it really. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much it for me. Uh, a rare, awesome cover on super friends. Number 26. I really never thought much of, uh, of that title or the art in that title, but that's actually a pretty cool cover with Batman kicking the crap out of somebody. All right, everybody. I guess the the final thing to say is that these two issues are reprinted in Justice Society of uh, Justice Society Volume Two. We bring this one to a close. Kind of sad knowing that no more of these issues of JSA to talk about. But we've got the JLA JSA crossovers coming up. We've got Power Girls Origin. We've got the Huntress backups. We've got other Earth 2-centric stories that we're going to be talking about, maybe not as in-depth, but we're at least going to cover them, all leading up to... Justice Society of America versus Muhammad Ali. (laughs) And just a quick note, I'm finally wearing pants. 
Good night, everybody. Yay! And there was much rejoicing. <laughs> hey, everybody. Mike here with just a quick note to give you your required reading. And realize that required reading is in quotes there. But your required reading for the next episode, check out Justice League of America, numbers 135, 136, and 137, and then issues 147 and 148. Those will be the issues we're covering in the next episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to another exciting episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America, hosted by Scott H. Gardner and Michael R. Bailey. If you like this show, check out Back to the Bins, where Mike and I talk about random back issues from the past. You can find that at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Scott has another podcast that he hosts with his childhood friend and former personal masseuse and fry cook to Oprah Winfrey, Chris Honeywell, called Two True Freaks, which, like Tales and Back to the Bins, can be found at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com. Mike has a few other podcasts that he either hosts or co-hosts because he loves the sound of his own voice as well. The first is Views from the Longbox, which is Mike's solo show and can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Then there's From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which Mike hosts with Jeffrey Taylor, which can be found at both www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbaileytube.com. Scott and I have gigantic egos, and we love to hear from the listeners. You can reach the show by writing to Tales of the JSA at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and come back next week for another installment of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. <laughs>